0: We are um, in Acts 11, it's only taken us a year to get here, but we're here. We're going to finish Acts 11 today as we go into the break, which um, it's a great, it actually is a great uh, break point for us uh, to take a break before we come back, because we just looked at really um, Gentiles coming into the, the body And um, going forward now, the church is just going to explode. We're going to see the missionary movement begin where the church sends out people and and churches spawn and respawn. And we're going to see the unfolding of God's plan uh, from the beginning of what He wanted to do and how He's wanted to bless the world. And so, just as a little recap, going back through Acts 1, remember in Acts 1, We saw this last week when we were doing our accountability. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. To the Jews, to the Samaritans, which were half-breeds, and to what? The Gentiles. Three churches or one church? One church. That was the plan from the beginning. It was always supposed to be that way. It was never supposed to be a divided group of people. They were supposed to be unified. The Old Testament, New Testament. Gentiles were included in the Old Testament, they were part of it. All the families of the earth were to be blessed. It goes all the way back into Genesis. And so um, we saw then from Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit came, they received that power. They start testifying first to the Jews. Then what happens? Persecution begins. And they're they're thrown uh, in jail. They're told to stop preaching. They say, we can't stop preaching. And so they are beaten and told, you better stop, you need to stop. But they still don't stop. And Stephen ends up uh, coming to faith. He ends up being martyred. And the persecution begins where all these believers get scattered now. The Messianic Jews get scattered all the people who believe Jesus is Messiah start scattering all over. Then Luke takes us onto an aside. He basically has a little gap. It's not, it's not really a gap. It's just a backstory where he fills in what happened. And he's going to pick it back up today in 11.1. But in between, what do we see? We saw in chapter 8, we saw the Samaritans. Philip goes there, proclaims the Gospel. The Samaritans re- receive Christ. They hear about it in Jerusalem. They disperse Peter. Peter goes there and, and goes, whoa, wait a minute. we got uh, Simon the magician here. And he's not even really a believer. Even though he's already been baptized. And by the way, some people this morning were like, well, I don't know if I'm ready to commit to be baptized. I mean, I know I believe. But I mean, and I'm like, if you believe, you should be baptized. If, if you're not sure, about your faith, but you believe Jesus died for you, you believe He's Messiah, get baptized. Let Jesus sort it out. I I mean, we've made it far too difficult. We do these classes and we do everything else to try to make it hard. Jesus said what? You go catch the fish, I'll sort out the good and the bad fish. And that's what He did with Simon the magician in chapter 8. Simon was baptized right away. The Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem on the way back. He said, look, there's water. Let me get baptized. He just said, there's water. I want to be baptized. Why? Because he was that urgently wanting to obey the command of Christ to be baptized. That's the way we should be with all of His commands. If we know He says to do something and we haven't done it, we ought to want to do it right away. And so we see that in Acts 8. Then, also, what we see uh, after that is we see uh, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch like I just talked about. And, And so the Ethiopian eunuch wasn't a Gentile. He was probably a Hellenistic Jew who lived outside of Jerusalem. But then we see in Acts 9 the conversion of Saul. Saul's converted, and God says, You will be my chosen instrument to take the message to the Gentiles. And so we see that message there in 9. And then in 10 we see Cornelius. And Cornelius was the first Gentile. Cornelius, we've spent four weeks on Cornelius. Four weeks. Why? Because God thought his story was so important that He said it three times. It's repeated three times in a row. That's pretty important. You know, if Scripture says something once, it's important. If it says it twice in a row, it's really important. If He says it three times in a times you better clean the wax out of your ears and open your eyes and look at what's going on. Because he's trying to tell you something here. And so as we look at this text today in 11 that follows the story of Cornelius, it kind of retells it and, and, and kind of unfolds what happens next and goes back to where Luke is progressing the church. I want you to see these four things that God reveals in the text today. The first thing is God reveals His plan for His children. He reveals the plan. What the plan is. I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a chosen, unified people. A chosen, unified people who put God on display in a dark world of chaos. That's what what His plan is. A chosen, unified people. And that's why it's so important for people to know because I'm going to tell you, the Gentiles were not accepted by Jewish people. They were rejected by them as a different class of people. And so this was huge. And so we see God's plan for His children. Second, we see God's providence for His children. Even when His children don't do what they're supposed to do, God is going to figure out a way to get it done because He's not thwarted by our disobedience. He's not thwarted by our failure. God's going to do what he does for his children. The third thing we see is his priority for his children. We see Barnabas lay out what the priority for his children are, uh, what his priorities are when he goes up from Jerusalem and encounters these Gentiles who have come to faith. And finally, we see the proof of ownership of his children. How do people know we're God's? How do do they know you're God's, David Wilbert? How how do they know? How do they look at you and then look at Chuck over here or look at some guy who's downtown that you don't know and how do they tell you're God's child? If people can't look at you, I remember a guy used to say a long time ago, he said... uh, if you were arrested for being a Christian and a child of God, would there be enough witnesses against you to convict you? So how do people know? We're going to look at that in the text. We see, we're we going to see that. So those are the four things. His plan for his children, his providence for his children, his priority for his children, and his proof of ownership these are my kids okay so let's read the text and by the way we're not going to spend a lot of time in 1 through 18 because it is almost an exact regurgitation of what we've already covered in 10 almost exactly the same so just a couple of brief comments that's going to be covered up in the first part the plan for his children so let's read verse 11 or chapter 11 verse 1 Acts 11 verse 1 (coughs) Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. It was in a trance. I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. So what's the first thing we see here is that Peter... Had a vision from the Lord. We know that. We've already said it twice. This is the third time. Peter had a heavenly vision. So that's one reason he ate with Gentiles. God sent him a heavenly vision. He goes on to say, But I said, by no means, Lord, verse 8, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. So now, he doesn't just have a vision from the Lord, he's got a command from the Lord. The Lord has commanded him, but he's just hearing a voice. This is not written down in text anywhere. It's not in the Torah. This is so beyond what he's ever been experienced to and so he's still processing that, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at, at the house in which we were sent to that were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. What happened in Samaria was not like what happened in chapter 2. What happened in Samaria is Peter went there, he laid his hands on them, then they received the Holy Spirit. But in this case, guess what happened? He just is speaking and the Holy Spirit came on. And then he says probably one of the most important verses in this whole text. And he says, and I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God bless that, man. That's just that's 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 powerful on a lot of levels. First of all, He said, I remembered the Word of the Lord. What Jesus said is what happened. He remembered the words of Jesus. Guys, everything that we experience has to be weighed through the lens of Scripture. If you have some bizarre spiritual experience and it doesn't line up with Scripture, and it tells you to go against something in Scripture... You know, people come up and they'll say, you know, God told me to tell you this. Okay. (laughs) And people have done that. When people say that, first of all, my hair stands up a little bit because I just like I God speaks through his word. I've been following him for gosh, fifty years. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I've seen the hand of God so many times I can't even count it all. To things that He's moved me to do that are in accordance with His Word and there's no explanation for how He accomplished some of those things. So I know God was involved, but I didn't hear a voice. I didn't hear a voice. I'm not saying He can't. He could. But when somebody says, God told me to tell you something, that folks, if they say that, then they are putting the authority of God behind what they're telling you they said. And I'm not going to trust anything unless it comes through this to me. It's got to pass through this. You know, if somebody says, God told me you need to be sharing your faith more, I'm like, I know I need to do that, okay? That's, (laughs) That's something I know I need to do. So that's right out of Scripture. But if God says, you know, uh, Amos, God told me you need to give me $5 million. And He told me to tell you that. I've just brought the authority of God behind a statement. And people do that stuff all the time. They don't go to that extreme, but they do that about different things. Now, God can prompt you. He does. The Spirit prompts us. I've picked up the phone and called people before. When I felt a prompting, a name comes to my mind that I haven't thought of in years, and I'll feel prompted to call them. And then when I'll call them, they'll say, wow, I really needed that or something. So God works in those ways. But I'm just Peter weighed all these things through what Jesus said. That was was the defining thing for him. We need to keep that in the back of our mind because, see, God's got this unfolding plan. And his plan is that we are a chosen, unified people. And the most significant thing about what was going on with Peter is that there wasn't one church for Jews, one church for Samaritans, and one church for Gentiles. There is one church. There is not a black church, a white church, and a yellow church. There's not a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, and a Baptist church. There's one church. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God who are His children. And boy, we have messed this up so bad. And and this is is exactly what he's trying to communicate through Luke is that there's one church unified body that it has a task to put God on display to the world around us and let the world see what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, honoring God, obeying His commandments. And what's so significant about the Gentiles, they did not grow up hearing the Ten Commandments. The Gentiles didn't know the rich history of Israel. They didn't know about David. They didn't know about Abraham. They didn't know about Isaac or Jacob. Do you know most Jewish kids, by the time they're eight, have memorized about 80% of the Torah? The first five books of the Bible back then? Maybe not today, but back then they did. 80%. 80% of the Torah. And now they're going to people that don't have that in their background. And one thing I think that, that they wanted to be clear about, that God wanted to be clear about, is that Christianity was not just another sect of Judaism. There was different sects of Judaism, and that was a real danger. And he wanted to make sure that there there wasn't the Jewish part of Christianity and the Samaritan part, and that there was one unified church. In Ephesians 4, Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He says that in several of His epistles. Walk in a manner worthy. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. You walk obeying Him because when you obey Him, you show you love Him and you trust Him. And you put Him on display to a world that could care less about God. And, and in Ephesians 4, 1-6, He goes on to say there's one body there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, one faith, and one God and Father of all. We don't serve different gods. I remember one time um, I was in the park, and I think I've shared this story with you, and a guy was giving me grief because he says he wasn't serving a white God. Jesus, god's not a white God, He's not a black God, He's a spirit. He has created a diversity of people in the world. A beautiful diversity that He rules over as the one living God of the universe. You can't label Him. You can't put Him in a group. He is outside of any group. Amen. And He's called us to represent Him. That we're in relationship with Him that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And now we can be back in connection with the creator God as one. And I told the guys this morning, you know, my connection in the Marine Corps was pretty strong. If I see a Marine, there's an instant bond right there that I would go lay my life down for that guy. Okay, Because there's just something there that, that was drilled into us. My connection to Christ is greater than that. It's greater when I see another brother. There should be an immediate. This is this is my brother in the Lord. The same Spirit of God that's in me is in him. And so when I meet people that say they're Christians and they don't want to talk to me about Christ, they don't want to talk to me about His work. They don't. That makes me scratch my head and go, "What's wrong? Why are they feeling repelled from me?" Because I'm not a. If you tell me, I'm going to take you at your word, Amos. If you tell me that you love Jesus, I'm going to take you at that word and assume that you feel the same way I do. But there are people that when you talk to them and you start trying to talk to them, they they, they, shout, they don't want to talk to you about His work. They don't want to talk to you about the things He's called us to do. And so that makes me suspect because we are one body. And if the same Spirit of God is in me is in you, then we should fellowship together when we're near one another, Right? We should feel connected. In the same way, if you grow up... Listen, you grow up in a family. And you have your brothers and sisters that you grew up with. When you see them, they're different from every other relationship you have in the world. They, they should be. And so the same way, we are one body. And back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. In Exodus 19, he said, you are a kingdom of priests. You are to teach the people my words. And that's, the, that's what he's called us to do. His plan was for this unified people to put him on display to a world that's dark. So that's his plan. And that's why three times he said this to Peter. He, he tells this story through Luke three times of Peter and Cornelius. Because, guys, I'm going to tell you, you have not seen the kind of prejudice that the Jews had for the Gentiles. It, it, we, we can't comprehend it. So this is a momentous thing for the Gentiles to be welcomed in. And what did they say at the last part? They said, then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance. that leads to life. That's a big statement. That's huge. And so we pick it up next. We see in verse 19 through 21, this providence for his children, because listen, it picks up back where 8-1 left off. Remember, we went into 8-1, they scattered, and then we get into Samaritans back in uh, now 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why? Because they were scattered. They didn't know about Cornelius. They didn't know what had happened with Cornelius. These people were scattered. They're up in the Cyprus area. They're uh, up near uh, Antioch. And by the way, Antioch, uh, Antioch of Syria was the third largest city in the world at that time. Rome was first, then Alexandria, and then Antioch. So it was the third largest city. Antioch was really the first missionary launching church in the Bible. It wasn't Jerusalem. It was Antioch. So God's work is about to start right here. The foundation is being laid. And these Jews are up there, but they're not talking to the Greeks. They're not talking to all the, the Greeks up there. But it says, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Who were they? God didn't want us to know because He didn't tell us their name. He just said there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Wait a minute. You've got Jewish people from Cyprus? who were preaching the Gospel to these Gentiles. Gentiles who had wouldn't, wouldn't be looking for a Messiah. Gentiles who wouldn't know that uh, God had promised a Messiah. But yet they preached to Him and look what God does. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Isn't that great? The hand of the Lord. Do you know what that reminds me of back in Exodus and when Moses was doing his stuff, putting God on display in front of uh, Pharaoh, they would try to imitate it. They would try to counterfeit it. Until they hit one, they couldn't. And then they said, this is surely what the finger of the Lord. They, they differentiated because they go, wait, we can mimic this, but boy, now we've gotten to a part. So the hand of the Lord was with these Jewish people as they shared with the Gentiles. And notice what it says after that. And a great number who believed turn to the Lord. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 when he talks about the Thessalonians who turn from idols to serve the living God. Why do we turn from... So, see, a lot of people think you just turn from sin. No. You turn to serve the living God. You don't just turn to get a ticket stamp to heaven. You don't just get a ticket stamp not to go to hell. You turn to serve the living God. That's what they did. And that's what Paul said. When he came... I'm sorry, go back to verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, why do you think they sent Barnabas? You know where Barnabas was from? Cyprus. Yeah. Yeah. He would have grown up around Greeks. I want to tell you something. There are people who grow up in one area and never leave, like the people who grew up in Jerusalem and never left Jerusalem, they had a lot of self-importance. I see this in my own city. home. When I grew up in a small town in Mississippi, I go back there. And you got people there that serve on committees and boards and serve on things, and they've never been out of that small little town. Only about 40,000 people in that town. You would think they're the President of the United States, the way they think about some of the decisions they make. They've never been outside of that little city. And I, I, I learned really quick, when you go to other parts of the world, you realize how small you are. You go and you think you're somebody till you go and you see people and you go, Wow. Look at look at all these people and what they do. Look at this over here and how rich the world is and how you if you just stay in one area and you never think outside of that box, you can be very self-important. And that's what happened in Jerusalem with these religious leaders. And they're sitting there, and so these people they send Barnabas up there who grew up in that area. And he goes back up there, verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So now we saw the plan of God is what? A chosen unified people to put God on display in a world of chaos. We saw the providence of God. You got Jews that aren't telling the Greeks about Jesus, but God has somebody else there to tell him anyway. And now we see His priority for His children when Barnabas tells them what? He says, remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. In other words, what He's saying is, know His Word and follow His plan. Know His Word and follow His plan. I just can't understand the Bible, Doug. Okay. You gotta read it. you're his. That's how he communicates with his people. I want to read a verse to you that you may have read, but I wonder if you've thought about it in the right context. First John chapter 2. I want you to listen to what it says about knowing God. 1 John, the last book was right before uh, First John's right before uh, Revelation there. 1 John 2, verse 24. Listen is what it says. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That word abide means to walk with, like in connection with. So when he says, let the word you heard from the beginning, walk with it, be connected to it, be associated with it. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So what's the connection there? If the Word is in you, then you're going to be in the Son and the Father. You're going to be connected. If the Word's not in you, you're not. I can't tell you the number of people that say they love Jesus that don't read the Bible. How, how can you be connected with Him? You, you can make all the excuses in the world, but He says clearly right there, you won't be connected with Him if you don't have the Word walking with you. And you've got to know the Word. Listen to what it goes on to say. He said, "...let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father." And this is the promise He made to us, eternal life. Guys, eternal life is not some cloudy place called heaven. Eternal life is the restored relationship back to the Creator that was broken in the Garden of Eden. That's what eternal life is. The, the, the benefit of that is we don't die. These bodies pass away and we get new bodies, but the eternal life is not in some distant place. Eternal life is the connection with God that He wants us to have with Him that was broken because of the garden. And you can't have that if you don't have the Word in you because without the Word, you can't have faith because faith comes by hearing, right? right? And hearing what? The Word. And so the word is such an important part. Know His word, follow His plan. Barnabas says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He's telling us the priority for God's children. Know His word, follow His plan. And you know, we see that a lot with our our own kids When they're young, I I remember I always wanted to know what the plan was for the day with my dad. My dad, when I was really young, I'd I'd help him. What are we going to do today, Dad? What are we going to do? I'd ask him. I wanted to know the plan, and he would tell me the plan. As I got older, I would make my own plans. As a teenager, I didn't consult my dad about what I was going to do in my day. That's not the way it works in the Christian life. Do you know... He owns you. When you wake up in the morning, every morning I wake up, you know what I say? The first thing out of my mouth, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want today, show me how I can serve you. I want to serve you today. Now, do I always do that? No, I blow it. I let selfishness come in and I make mistakes and I have to repent of it. But at least I want to start my day off acknowledging He owns me for the day. He owns us. He, He bought us. And we should start every day saying, Lord, I'm yours today. Whatever your plan is, that's my plan. That's what I want. Help me to serve you today. And so Barnabas goes up there to Antioch. He sees all these people. And by the way, the language there, go back to Acts uh, chapter 11. When when it says a great many people were added to the Lord, that's a monumental number of people. That is not just a, a handful of people. It was a huge crowd, a huge crowd. And so Barnabas sees this and he goes, wow, I've got to get some help. I can't handle all this. I know exactly the right guy to go get. You see, he had been with this guy in Jerusalem named Saul. And this guy in Jerusalem had a calling from God to what? To lead and teach Gentiles. And so he goes and searches for him. It wasn't an easy search. In the text you read it, it sounds like he just found him really quickly. No, he had to search for Saul. He found him. And it says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That was not a good term. It was a term of derision. The, the, the ending there is Ianos, and Ianos was added to Christos. And Ianos means a party of, like a part of, like, like a political party. It's kind of like a party of Christ. But it really literally meant a party of people that talked about Christ. That's what it meant to those people. And it was derisive, it was a derisive term, it was uh, not a nice term. And Christians didn't usually refer to themselves as Christians. It was what the Greeks called them. Those are the Christians. They're in the party of Christ. And so they were called Christians, belonging to the party. Paul, the chosen instrument, he got him and they taught him for a whole year. And so we saw the plan for the children, a chosen unified people putting God on display, the providence, Even when God's children didn't teach and preach the way they should, other people came in. He had others that He raised up to do it. By the way, God does not let one person's disobedience keep another person out of the kingdom. In other words, if Chuck is supposed to share the Gospel with Bob, but he doesn't, and God's going to bring me or Jeff or somebody else into Bob's life, just because he's disobedient doesn't mean he's going to go to hell. That's what I was taught growing up. If you don't do this, he's going to go to hell because of you. That's wrong. That's just, that's insane. God's going to eternally condemn you because of what he did over here. No, that's not true. God's children are going to be gathered. And he, that just like he did with his providence here, when these people were only speaking to Jews, he goes, I got these other people I'll bring in. Then we saw his priority is what? To know his word and follow his plan. And finally, what's the proof of ownership? We see it here. In those days, it says, verse 27, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. He stood up and he foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And in other writings, we know that around 45 to 50 AD that there were famines that went through during the reign of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So how did God reveal His proof of ownership in these people? Well, He goes, okay, i got this famine that's going to happen. That'll be a good opportunity for these young believers to, to give because when you give your money, especially in agrarian culture, when you give your money, your heart is where your treasure is, right? Your heart is where your treasure is. So for them to give, it was a sacrificial giving, but they gave according to their ability. They gave according to their ability. But notice who decided that they should give. Was it Paul? Was it Barnabas? Who was it? It was them. They were the disciples. So apparently, Paul and Barnabas had been teaching them, and on their own, by the Spirit empowerment, they said, hey, there's brothers in Jerusalem who are in need, we need to send money because things are tough there. Let's send them money. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we, we are very familiar with that. Most of us are. For by grace you've been saved through faith that is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work that any man may boast. But a lot of times we don't add 10 in. For we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, you're not brought into the kingdom to just sit and consume. You're brought into the kingdom to be a contributor. These people showed the proof that they were gods by saying, we have brothers in need. Let's step up and let's send them some money and help our brothers, the very brothers that question whether we were even valid enough to be in the kingdom. You think about that for a minute. The very people they're helping are the people that question whether they should even be in the kingdom. And they did it because God prompted them to do it. 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 6, talks about giving. I don't, you know, you know what a lot of Christians do today? We tip God. Something good happens, I'm going to give a little bit of this to God. It's like good service from a waiter. And we tip God instead of giving to help his kingdom, giving. To further his kingdom work, giving to help brothers in need. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, looking down at verse 6. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Third John, right before uh, Revelation. You go to 3 John, verse 8. You know what John says about giving? He says that when you give, you are a fellow worker of truth. 3 John 8. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. These are people who are working for the kingdom. That we may be fellow workers for the truth. People that have supported our ministry for 25 years from Meridian, Mississippi. And... They have given faithfully for 25 years. Not a large sum of money, but faithfully, consistently, they've prayed for us. Those people have never been outside of Meridian, Mississippi. But do you know they've had an impact in India, in Kyrgyzstan, in Russia, in the Philippines, in Kazakhstan, in Israel? Those people have had an impact all over the world even though they never stepped foot out of Meridian, Mississippi. Because they were partners with what we do. Partnering in the kingdom, that's what they do. Listen, you're either a goer or a sender. you got to do one or the other. That's what we're commanded to do. That's the mission that we're supposed to be on. And that's what Luke's trying to communicate in the book of Acts is the work Jesus started continued through his apostles and then the disciples. And notice that when uh, Barnabas went up there to affirm these believers, it wasn't an apostle. Barnabas was not an apostle. He was one of the guys that was sent up there. So the work is transitioning from the 12 down to the people. And then notice that it wasn't even Paul or Barnabas that commanded them to give money. These disciples decided to do it. Why? Because they saw the value. The disciples determined everyone according to His ability. They didn't compare with each other. They didn't say, well, because Chuck did this, I ought to do it. They looked at what they ought to give. I'm sure they prayed about it, and they supported those people in Jerusalem. In Galatians 6 6, it says, One who's taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And they realized in Antioch that they would not have been taught had they not sent Barnabas up there. They realized that. And so they wanted to bless and help those people. Guys, y'all have been so generous. We have helped people over in India. We've helped people here in Jacksonville. The Word has gone to a lot of places. And I'm grateful for all that you guys do. I am. I'm grateful for it. We couldn't do it. Amos and Bennett are on my board, and they'll tell you God has done more. Than, I can't tell you how we stay on the air on the radio. We, just, we get by every month, but we do. And we do it because God provides through His people but don't miss this, that the proof of the ownership was these people didn't have to be made to do this. They did this on their own. They did this. They chose to do it. Why? Because the Spirit was in them. And the proof of the ownership, or like my mom used to say, the proof is in the pudding, you see what is reality. So people can talk about being His all day long, but the reality is if we're His... We are going to see good works. Plain and simple. People should not have to guess if you're a Christian or not. They shouldn't have to be going, well, you know, Ryan, I think he is, man. He says he is, but I don't know. You know, I just don't know. If people are having to guess whether you're a Christian, can I give you some encouragement over the holidays? Why don't you start by asking God, God, let me, let me embrace My love relationship with you so that people don't have to wonder whether I really love you or not. I mean, guys, if people have to wonder if you love your wife, you shouldn't be married. (laughs) If people have to wonder if you love God, you shouldn't call yourself a Christian. Because you're not a Christian because you're an American, you're not. You're not a Christian because you own a Bible. You're not a Christian because you go to a church. You're a Christian, that term of derision, you're part of the Christ party if you love Him. And He lives in you. Plain and simple. That's it. And if He's yours and you're His, His proof of ownership is going to be seen. It's gonna be seen just like any any product that's put out by somebody. You can tell who owns it. And you can tell a fake from a real one too. Right. Pretty quickly. Yeah. Maybe not at first, but you don't have to spend long around it until you can take tell it's a fake. Jimmy, if I brought you a, a knockoff Mucci, could you tell the difference between a real Mucci pool stick and a knockoff? Yeah, I think you could, because you made pool sticks. You know what it looks like. And in the same way, we don't want to be fakes, we want to be real. So what do we do? Just going back to the questions we asked last week. If anything has surfaced in your own heart, own it. Just own it. God, man, I have not lived the way I I, I have lived in such a way that I've not put you on display. I've been more divided than unified. Lord, I'm sorry. I don't give you thanks for the providence. I don't I haven't been obedient to you. I want to be obedient. Own what it is. Lord, I don't know your word. I don't read your word. Lord, I don't follow your plan. I don't even ask you about your plan. Own that stuff and say, "God, I want people to see me and you because I am yours." Listen, he's not going to have any problem recognizing me. I'm his. I'm his. I will die his. I'm his. Nothing's going to waver me off that path. My wife can leave me. My kids can disown me. I don't care. I am his. And I always will be until he takes me home. And I bet you could line up 100 people that I visited in the last year. And I hope they would condemn me for being a Christian. I hope that there would be enough evidence from them that I love Jesus. And I want the same thing for you. That's what we should have. We should not there are there's no such thing as a secret Christian today. There's no such thing. You can't be a secret Christian. It's an oxymoron. You can't. If you're a Christian, you are commanded to put God on display to the world around you. Amen. So that's all I have. Um, Bennett, will you close our comment for us?